This is the Boundless Possible Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. Pete? Hello there. How are you, mate? Very well. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, I'm here in the uh, um, wonderful stereos at the, the wonderful um, sit. Uh, uh, in fact, I've lost my, my words here. It's, it's your home away from home now, isn't it? It's overwhelming. It is overwhelming. That's exactly right. I'm actually here in the uh, illustrious uh, offices of the Aboriginal Broadcasting Australia office. So, AKA uh, Radio Larrakia. Yes, and AKA I think lots of other things. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so I want to give a bit of a shout out to uh, Fox McLaughlin for uh, allowing us to use his um, studio today. We love you, Fox. And a shout out, <laughs> and a shout out to the builders upstairs for making that uh, the reason why you're there. Yes, and also a shout out to Dave and Nestor for introducing us to Fox. <laughs> <laughs> True, so it's uh, boundless possible that the podcast is cl- is clearly creating a patchwork of stories that is connecting all of us, uh, Pete. That's what I reckon is happening. Very true, very true, and we all we know about six degrees of separation, but I think in Darwin it ends up being only one or two, doesn't it? One, mate, one. Point <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. five. <laughs> uh, that, that those dulcet tones you're hearing in the background is our is our guest today, uh, Vanessa Paik. Hi guys, sorry, I just thought I'd butt in on the introduction. <laughs> I love the yeah. fact that you did, Vanessa. Sorry, go on. I love the fact that you did. Oh, <laughs> it's um, it's awesome to be with you guys. Your reputation precedes you. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, <laughs> but, but uh, just for our listeners, Vanessa was introduced to us. I do not know. I've known Vanessa for about ten minutes. I'd yep, say yep, right now, go way back in internet time. <laughs> um, we, uh, I was contacted. Uh, by AJ Kulatunga. AJ was a previous guest on the Boundless Possible podcast. Hi, AJ, again. Hi, AJ. Um, <laughs> and AJ uh, reached out to me and said, Leon, you absolutely have to get Vanessa Paik on your podcast. <laughs> so, um, you know, we're not one to quibble about these things. So immediately reached out to Vanessa uh, through LinkedIn, and here Vanessa is. Here I am. Yeah, no, well, look, uh, I don't take that recommendation lightly. Uh, AJ's a, a hell of a guy, as you know, if you've heard him on this podcast before. Um, and, yeah, AJ and I go go way back in interesting ways. We were just talking about the, the 0.5 or one degree of separation the Territorians often seem to have, and AJ and I are no different. So AJ was taught by my mum, Mrs. Paik, Suzanne Paik, um, when he was coming up through school in the NT. Um, what school was that? Uh, it was Wolagi at the time. Wolagi so, uh, Primary. Yeah, Wolagi Primary. Um, and uh, she, tell, she tells me that uh, he was her favourite student, and I believe her, and I had the privilege of meeting him back then when I was pretty young myself, but a bit older than AJ. Um, and I, uh, yeah, he blew me away even back then. Um, and so AJ and I actually have, have stayed in touch over the years on and off. So met him when he was a little tacker and uh, watched his career blossom and mine's gone in all sorts of different directions. And, you know, now our, our worlds kind of are overlapping a little bit in terms of the technology space and other things. So, yes, the Territorian web extends far and wide. Um, he followed my adventures when I went overseas and, and back again. And, um, and now he's back down in Melbourne, which is where I am. So, um 
And he likewise said, you have to get in touch with Leon. He's doing awesome stuff. So there we go, full circle. Full circle. So in, 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 in the, continuing that vein of full circle, we <laughs> want to take you back all the way to where were you born? So I was born in Adelaide, right. which uh, quite some years ago. <laughs> um, my uh, parents uh, were sort of of that generation of Australians where uh, uh, mum was a teacher, dad was an engineer, um, and they'd actually been up in Papua New Guinea for quite a few years working out there. Um, I decided they want to have a kid, so they came back to Australia, had me. Um, there's a lot of Pakes in South Australia. It's where most of the family comes from. There's actually a Pake town in South Australia, and it's the one state I go to where they kind of don't struggle to pronounce the name. <laughs> um, so came back. So I was born in Adelaide, but then lived there for a couple of years, and then we actually went on the move again. So went back up to Papua New Guinea for quite a while, uh, went to preschool up there. My mum sort of co-founded like Madang Preschool under her elevated house back in, back in the 70s. Um, huh. So that, that was my my preschool experience up there. So born in Adelaide, then quite quickly on the move and really haven't stopped moving since. Right. And, and your name, Vanessa, is quite a, a distinct uh, way of spelling it. I've never seen it before. Yeah, I've seen it around a little more these days. I think these days, you know, there's so many of us that will cover off every spelling of everything eventually. Uh, but, yeah, at the time I know my mum was a big fan of the actress Vanessa Redgrave, which yeah. is spelled with a V-A. Uh, she wanted to name me after her, but my mum being my mum was like, no, I wanted to be different and special. So she thought she'd change the A to an E. So I'm V-E-E-N-E-S-A. And so that's how that came about. And so you've never been able to buy a cup with your name on it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I haven't. And it, it results in two explanations when I say Vanessa and then Pake, not Pete. So there's a lot of explaining that I'm interested in <laughs> But I tend to just say Pake, like cake, which makes it nice and easy to remember. <laughs> it does, it does, right. And so, and do you have any siblings? I do not, no. So I'm an only child. Only child. Yeah. And so how did your parents end up in Darwin? So uh, that's a really good question. So we were up in Papua New Guinea for quite a while, bounced around to a few other states as well, um, both of them taking various uh, teaching and engineering posts, uh, and then uh, came up to the Territory in late 84. Okay. So quite some time. Uh, Mum got a job up here and Dad got a job up here. So I actually don't remember which one got the job first, but obviously they sort of uh, organised their lives to, to come up together. I think, um, you know, I think, and I've probably inherited this from, from them a bit, but my mum particularly uh, liked faraway places and interesting experiences and kind of new challenges all the time. So I think that that uh, allure is what pulled them to the Territory back in that era. Uh, and so, yeah, we came up here. So I was um, nine turning ten when we first moved here. And I vividly remember we came from down south at the time and I had really long hair down to my feet. I've still got pretty long hair, but this is the hair story. So <laughs> we came up. Um, we bought all our stuff up, um, and I remember getting, getting, arriving, um, driving around. A, 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 we had a, 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 an uncle up here, I think it was, um, and he was driving us around in a mini moke. So no doors, which was very handy because it was boiling hot. And I was so overwhelmed and freaked out by the heat that I vowed instantly to cut all my hair off. And I did the next week, and boy, did I regret it. <laughs> I looked awful. Mm -hmm. But I was, um, I remember looking around. It was in the dry season. Um, and there was, uh, you know, people walking around with jumpers and cardigans, and I was like, these people are insane. It's a million degrees. It's like the face of the sun here. <laughs> um, so that was my first um, uh, exotic and overwhelming uh, memory of, of coming up to Darwin. So, and, yeah, it stayed here for all of the formative years. Right, right. And, and so 
you, you did your primary school in Mulagi, I presume? Yeah, yeah, um, Mulagi, and then also um, a little bit in uh, Stuart Park Primary as well. Okay. Yeah. And then high school? Uh, high school was St. John's College. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then for year 12, and I uh, made the jump to public school mm -hmm. just because of the, the nature of the subjects I wanted to study, it kind of worked out better. So probably not a great idea to change things up so radically in your last year of school, but again, like the challenge. Um, so Casarina High for my for year 12. But yeah, St. John spent a long, good good many years there, very fond memories of it, and then um, up to Casarina for, for year 12. And then what did you do? So then what did I do? So all, all this while I was kind of um, doing a lot of singing and dancing. <laughs> um, so I was um, learning dancing with um, Debbie Hatton's dance school in Darwin. I don't know if anybody remembers that, but that was, um, she was sort of the, the main uh, dance academy in town back in that era um, and built, built a really amazing kind of studio with all sorts of styles. And um, she was married to Chief Minister Steve Hatton for a really long time. Okay. Yeah, so that's that family. <laughs> um, so I was um, studying with her and then um, uh, really adored dancing was, you know, was my sport. It was my main thing in life outside of school. Um, so that was really consuming and I was really passionate about it. I knew I probably wanted to do something with that if I could. Um, and that eventually also through high school grew into singing and acting and all, you know, all the various facets of performing. Um, so I was in musicals and shows and things like that. And so as, as I approached the end of the end of high school, I thought, well, I really want to go somewhere that I can both get a good university education, but also ideally, you know, work on this craft and, you know, maybe become a professional performer or Certainly wanted to keep going with that. And at the time, it wasn't, um, there was NIDA down in Sydney, but that was really just sort of straight acting and didn't really offer a musical theatre, which is where my passions lay. Um, musical theatre. Yeah, so, you know, so Broadway musicals yes, and that yes. sort of stuff. Yes. The full singing and dancing uh, jazz hands cavalcade. Yes. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> uh, and WAPO in Western Australia, which is, is a fantastic academy, um, they hadn't really um, got around to offering the, the full extent of stuff that they do now either. So there really was very, there actually was limited options in terms of Australia. And, and I, again, being the ambitious uh, child that I was, I was like, well, clearly I just have to go straight to Broadway. <laughs> also, I think I internally really liked the the journey of Darwin to Broadway. Um, so that's basically what I did. So I, uh, again, uh, ambitiously uh, uh, convinced my, my parents and thankfully my mum didn't need too much convincing. She was always and always is incredibly supportive. Um, so I had to fly over to America. And we thought... At the age of 18. Yeah, yeah, I was uh, 17, actually. Um, so I flew over, so I had to apply apply to the school. This is, so this was New York University. Mm -hmm. So they um, they have a famous performing arts school called Tisch School of the Arts. Have you been, have you been to American I had No, I hadn't. So it was all, it was all new and exciting. So I is that the one based on the TV show? Yes, yeah, it was, yeah. So so there's two, actually. So there's a New York High School of Performing Arts, which is yeah. the, an actual high school, and that's um that's from the Fame TV series and the Fame movie. Yeah, yeah. Today. Yeah, and this is kind of the, the uni version of the same thing, basically. Okay. So, it's, yeah, the yeah, school cool. itself sits on on Broadway, the street, um, down in Greenwich Village in Manhattan. It's wow. looks amazing. So I went over there and I auditioned. So it kind of has two parts. You know, I had to get good grades and pass the university side of things and then also do the performing arts auditions, so singing, dancing and acting auditions. Uh, and then, you know, lots of people were auditioning from all over the world, of course, and then I thought, well, give it give it a red-hot go. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, you know, I rationalised it like this and I think this is the right approach for this and really anything in life is it's going to be an amazing experience. Of course I wanted to get in with all my heart and soul, but it's going to be amazing. I'm going to get to visit New York. I'm going to visit Broadway. I'll make the most out of this trip, live every minute of it. And look, if it doesn't work out, 
that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe I'll give it another go or I'll do yeah. something else. So, yeah, really just kind of um, sucked all the marrow out of the experience. Um, and as luck would have it, I, um, they liked me. Um, I passed all the academic side and was able to get in. Um, and so, yeah, when came had come back to Darwin. Of course, they don't. Um, well, one of the guys that was auditioning gave me a bit of a wink on the way out because I think he knew I was going a long way home and would have to wait and sort of made me feel pretty good about the experience. Um, and then came all the way back home and remember getting letter in the mail because phone calls from America were really expensive at that time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so they did the work at a call, got a letter saying, you have been accepted. So that was, wow. that was incredible. Yeah. So um, what year was that, Vanessa? That, so that was, um, I got the letter in like 92, which, and so 1993 was my freshman year, my first year. Wow. Year. Yeah. So it was amazing. And look at the time yeah. I was the first Aussie to be accepted into that musical theatre program there. So that was also, I didn't even realise that till I got over there actually. Yeah. Um, but that yeah. was also something to, you know, I was really proud and really blown away by that. And, you know, I think, um, yeah, since then there's been lots of amazing Australians that have come through, but what a great opportunity, you know, to, to represent not just Darwin and the NT, but to, yeah, to represent Australia at the time. So that was, had my 15 minutes of fame in Darwin and, you know, in the NT news, you know, Aussie Darwin girl makes big in music. <laughs> Um, and, I, and off and off I went to that adventure. Wow. Um, yeah, it was it look it was incredible. I re, it was um the making of me in every sense of the word. So and I really, you know, I was a very wide-eyed 17, turning 18 year old, um, effectively from Darwin going over to, to Manhattan, you know, with so no siblings, never lived on my own before. <laughs> Just going, Did okay. your parents go with you? Uh, no, so my mum, um, my dad actually um left the family at this point so it was just my mum and me um and uh so she yeah she did come over when I first sort of to help me get set up which was great so living in the dorms doing the full uni experience um if you remember that tv show from not long after that Felicity yeah yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah, went yeah. to NYU that character and I remember watching that going yeah. my dorm room was not that big <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so it was kind of that 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 experience so it's right in the heart of Greenwich Village um, and, and what was it I mean I remember thinking when I was your age, when I was that age, about, you know, the prospect of going overseas and studying. Uh, but one of the things that just, you know, and I guess it was a mental block on my part was, oh, my God, how much is this going to cost? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. And I just want to be clear, we were not rich. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it, um, you're exactly right. And I think I was, so a combination of things, you know, um, Mum, you know, I was very, really fortunate and remain really fortunate to have um, an amazing mum who's, you know, always been really happy to lend a hand um, financially to, to help realise, you know, our, our potential as a family and my potential, which is incredibly, incredibly grateful for. Um, I also, kind of through high school and, um, you know, kind of in that inter- intervening year before I went over there, you know, was um, was working really hard to save a lot of money. So I was working both teaching dance um, locally here in schools and at the dance school and um, doing some theatre teaching as well. And also working at cinema, the Cinema Darwin oh, <laughs> right. in Mitchell Street, which yeah. is um, not far from where we are now, um, you know, tearing tickets and shuffling popcorn and all that sort of stuff, which was great. I absolutely adored that those days. They were great. So I was stashing the money away, you know, still living at home, thankfully. So I was able to save, 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 save. Um, and between that, and I was also able to um, I applied for and um, got a, a little bit, little bit of financial help from the, the Northern Territory government. They had a couple of small grants that they offered um, for different creative pursuits and things at the time, which was which was terrific. So, you know, a few thousand here and there, which was really helpful. Um, and you look at it, it's a 
it's one of the top tier schools in the states. It's not not a cheap school, NYU. Um, what were um, the like back then? Oh, they were they were they were pretty substantial. You know, you're talking about. I'm just trying to remember exactly. I think it was about thirty thousand a turn US or something insane. And this is back when the Australian dollar was like fifty seven cents. Kills me. So it was very full on. And I was going to say, NYU also gave me a small academic scholarship for my grades, which was great too. So, look, I, I was really fortunate. If, if a lot of those things hadn't been play, I wouldn't have been able to make it work necessarily. So, mm. again, really, really fortunate um, to have, have that support, um, you know, and, and worked, yeah, worked really hard. I like to think that I would have found a way somehow blood, sweat and tears to pull this off once I found out that I got accepted. Um, but, yeah, I definitely had some, some help, absolutely. And so what did you do there? <laughs> Sing and danced a lot. Um, so yeah. I basically went into a cocoon. Uh, look, it's it's not dissimilar to, um, you know, people that go go study professional sports and kind of go into sports academies. It's really similar, actually. You go into a kind of a conservatory-style environment. So three days a week you're in, in that performing arts kind of cocoon and then the other days you're off doing your normal you know, liberal arts studies. So you're studying yeah, math, science, psychology, whatever it is you're studying at uni. So it was a really a good um, degree. Um, so it was like a Bachelor of Fine Arts across four years. And then those three days, you know, you start off your morning, you've got dance classes for a few hours, got tap, jazz, ballet, everything in between. Um, and you've got, you know, voice and speech, you've got um, you know, singing, vocal classes, you've got one-on-one -on -one classes, you've got acting classes, um, directing, script writing, music theory, wow. everything, right? And then, you know, much like any um, kind of course or degree, as you move through, you, you get opportunities to kind of specialise and focus on certain areas. So, but, but unlike, say, an arts degree or something like that, where, you know, you, you, you go in, or even a law degree, where, you know, you, you go and you learn stuff, you go home, you read stuff. Yeah. This sounds so it's really intense. Amazing. Yeah, it's like that's why I use the athletic analogy. I think it's much sim more similar, really. Mm. So, you know, you go, you get up early and you're, you're training, basically, from kind of 7 or 8 a.m. in the morning, um, all the way through to, you know, it's a look, it's a normal uni day. So you probably finish up between 4 and 5. But then, of course, because that's what you're doing, more than likely then what you've got is rehearsals for something. So whether that's a, a play, or, so you might be meeting up with someone, a classmate, to work on a scene for, for class, or you might be actually in a show that's either part of the uni or that's actually happening in the city. Um, so you've got to go to rehearsals for that. So, yeah, it, it was really um, intensive and, and all-encompassing, all uh, which is why my musical taste kind of stops at about 1990. It's like, so I'm like <laughs> yeah. very fond of 80s music and then like, I'm like, I don't really know what happened in the 90s. All I can tell you about is musicals and yeah. it picks back up after that. It's quite funny. I was like in a pop culture cocoon. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, it was. But look, that, be, that being said, you know, we worked really, really hard um, and I did. And obviously you want to make the most of being at a, in a place like that at a time like that mm. um but you know i made sure to you know yeah i'm in at uni in, in an amazing city so obviously i'm going to go out and enjoy myself as well which i did so but did you work at the same time no no i didn't i, I uh, so I, I came home like on the on the, the big american uni summer break yes. and i would work back here and again safe 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 mm. <laughs> and head back um i did take a few um theater jobs and the mm. more the longer the time i spent over there and that was was paid but yeah i did to be honest it really would have been really challenging to mm. fit in and do well and study which was sort of the, the priority obviously and how many years was a degree four years yeah, yeah, so it was four, four years all up, so kind of like a, like a bachelor's with honours, basically. Yeah. Um, and it was, I've got to say, it was such a good time to be in New York. So this mm. is, you know, 93, like I said, yeah. beginning of 93. What a time to be there. So you've got, you know, it's an incredible city at any time mm -hmm. in history, really. Um, but you've got, you know, the, the birth of the internet around this time, the birth oh, of the public yes. web, right? Yes. So this is, 
I was in this inter- interesting world where, you know, I'd be in doing all this theatre stuff and then I'd come out and then we'd we'd hit go down to like the, the cool cyberpunk cafe that had opened up in the corner <laughs> and, you know, pay our money and drink our cocktails and, and surf the web and go to our online communities and our forums and, and all the rest of it. Mm. So there was this whole twin world, which would later come to be the thing that would dominate my life, um, emerging at the same time. And it was just a really interesting, dynamic time to be in, in that city. And, you know, there was still kind of, if you watch all those famous New York movies, Taxi Driver and then all that sort of, you know, the really iconic New York stuff from the 70s and 80s, there's a real kind of gritty, gritty and gnarly edge to New York, you know, it's an unsafe yeah. one as well. Um, and then, you know, if you go there these days, yeah, it's actually a really incredibly safe city and the, the guys, have, they've transformed it tremendously. I was right in the middle of that period, so I kind of got to watch a bit of that transformation. So by the time when I arrived, you know, you still had like your porn theatres on 42nd Street. They were closed down, but they had like beatnik poetry up on the on the awnings. Um, you know, you still had kind of, the barrels in the street and a bit, a bit of a gritty edge and was definitely still parts of the city you, you wouldn't go to uh, if you wanted to be safe. But And then by the time I left, Disney had bought 42nd Street <laughs> completely, you know, and it was basically a theme park. <laughs> so yeah. it was, yeah, and the, the whole, I guess, the whole culture, you know, it's a city that's changing literally second to second, let alone mm. year to year. But I definitely saw some really um, kind of... Uh, robust change over that time period wow. i'm really i feel very grateful i got to i still adore new york it still has a very special place in my heart and i still kind of feel like a surrogate new yorker as much as i feel like a territorian um, but i am really i feel lucky i got to see it mm. in that little bubble in time you know if you think yeah. about it before september 11 yeah. that obviously had a has a real psychic imprint on the city that's mm. you know it's never going to quite be the same again um so yeah, yeah I, i'm glad i got to got to experience a bit of that before it changed and so when, so, oh, go ahead, Pete. So I was just going to say, when when you walked out of NYU, having completed what you were going there to do, what what was the what was the ambition beyond that? What what does that then qualify you to do, and what what did you do? <laughs> Be a starving actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's great. So at um, at Tish, they kind of have—I don't know if they still do. They at the time they had a tradition where you know, so you graduate and you have an have an amazing uh, commencement ceremony in Washington Square Park, which is where the campus is for for the school, really. Um, and where I had two commencement speakers, Al Gore and Spike Lee. Wow. Which is hilarious. Wow. Um, yeah, so so Al Gore was up there talking about climate change yes. in 1997. <laughs> Um, poor thing, trying to send early warning bells. Um, um, and Spike Lee, who was also, they're both graduates, right? So, um, which was amazing. And Al then we all graduated from. Yeah, I think he did. Spike Lee definitely did. I think Al Gore did. He did drama? No, 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 sorry. An NYU graduate. Okay, NYU. Yeah, no, not, not drama specifically. That would be a really. That would be, really, <laughs> that would be ironic. Very effective for him. <laughs> Spike Lee uh, definitely went to NYU. Um, so then the, the, everybody jumps in the fountain, which is pretty cool. So everybody yeah. jumps in the big Washington uh-huh. Square Park fountain. So there you are soaked in your purple NYU robes, as you say, uh, thinking, you know, all right, what what now? Mm. Um, so I guess what it qualifies me to do, I suppose, is it says, okay, you know, you've been, you've been trained to do all things musical theatre by one of the best schools in that that space mm. so off you go go and audition and get in the line like everybody else um with the hopes that so i mean the qualification itself you know pe- people do pay attention to it particularly in a in a city that is 
uh, where that is a really key industry. Musical theatre is obviously a, a yes. critical industry and a critical business for New York City. Um, so it matters. But more than that is if that training has been good and effective. It's given you a toolbox that you can then draw on to do great work, whether you go and put on your own plays or go and write movies or wh whatever it is you're going to do, yeah. you've hopefully got an array of tools and training that allows you to be better at that and be successful at that and bring that to life in a way you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. So I knew I wanted to, at that point, keep working in the theatre, so that's what I did. So I stuck around basically for the rest of that decade uh, and did... A variety of things in New York, so you know, plays large and small, dance stuff large and small. Did a bit of choreography. Dance was, I think, because I came from dance, that was always kind of my um, my core art, if that makes sense. So it's probably I feel more like a dancer than anything else, even though it's been a while since I've danced professionally. Um, and so you know, you you find the work you can, you collaborate with interesting people. Um, and so, yeah, I, I stayed in New York and I, I lived the life, I guess, which was pr pretty amazing. So I was in some off-Broadway shows and musicals and, um, yeah, look, I, I worked, which I think is is the all you could ask for as, a, as an artist. Mm. Uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's about having a chance to practice your craft and ideally make a living at that. You know, it's not, you know, individuals have obviously different motivations, but that's the ultimate. That was what I was there to do. And I think I was still largely in that that mode of, you know, let's just, you know, just every second I'm here, you know, could all end tomorrow, I might need to go home, I don't know what's going to happen. It's a very, it's a volatile industry by nature. Um, it's a dynamic kind of city, so there's always that nothing is certain. So just trying to definitely live a bit moment to moment and, and mindfully and just, you know, see, see what comes of the experience. But how does it work with, like, uh, you were obviously, so you went over there on a student visa. Yes. And then when you finished your degree, does it convert to a working visa or something? Yeah, yeah, not not in and of itself. So, uh, so basically, it's it's I think it's pretty well actually in the era of, of Trump, less so. But um, um, basically, you effectively need to get somebody to sponsor you, right? right. So, so whether that is uh, an individual business that wants to hire you and is prepared to, you know, they have to jump through some paperwork hoops in terms of saying that, you know, we definitely want to hire this person um they have a skill set or a set of attributes that you know, we, we we want and are maybe not able to find easily elsewhere which is fair enough they want to justify giving jobs to people that aren't necessarily american citizens um and so if you're in the arts it's pretty similar you know you need to um get have a have a production or have a have a project that wants to hire you uh, and then is then happy to basically fill out the paperwork on your behalf. Mm. Um, so, and so that's that's how it worked for me. So I didn't, um, so I was able to kind of work project to project. Um, and I, that was by design. I, I could have at any point decided to go and um, kind of trigger a, you know, an American Green Card process or start down that road. Um, whilst I adore New York with all my heart and soul, I was already, I already knew that I didn't necessarily want to stay in the States forever. And I didn't necessarily want to go down that road. So I was a little bit in a holding pattern of let's see how this goes. Don't want to necessarily start down that road uh, without a bit more forethought. And, you know, Americans, uh, you know, tend to be reasonably strict around you know, not necessarily letting you hold multiple citizenships. What I definitely knew was I wasn't prepared to give up my Australian citizenship to become an American citizen. Yeah, and, and certainly still I'm not. Somewhere around that time, I've left out a key fact, <laughs> which is that I got married. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, um, to, to an amazing American guy. Um, 
we met, you know how I mentioned we were, you know, kind of hanging out in all those cyber cafes. Um, so <laughs> uh, my first online community, which I talk about quite a bit in, in my work now, um, was an X-Files fan forum. <laughs> so wow. this is back. Remember the X-Files yeah. started in 1993. Yeah. That's when I started watching it. I was like one of the original fans. Uh, we won't talk about he the latest He wasn't an alien, things. was he? He was an alien. No. <laughs> he worked for the FBI. <laughs> um, so we, we both met on this it, online. You know, it was like all those old bulletin board forums, yeah. right? So we met yeah. on that. Um, he was um, he's American, as I said. We met on that before anywhere else. Everybody used you know, usernames and handles and avatars, so nobody knew who anybody was, but it was great. It was a really dynamic, amazing community of people all over the world, all just fans of the show. Um, so we met there. We fell in love online <laughs> um, and eventually met in person. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of how, how we came together. And then uh, uh, at that time, he's from California originally, but he was living in um, Tennessee at the time. So we sort of met halfway in Nashville. So, yeah, we, we um, hooked up and we, we um, you know, kind of uh, I think it was probably about a year after we first met on the forum that we met in person. And then around 1997, we got married. We came back to Darwin to do that. Um, so we got married in Australia and then went back to New York. So we were living uh, living there and, you know, finishing up my degree, working, doing stuff. And um, Stuart, that's my husband, he was working in, in New York as well while we were there. So, what yeah, so that was a... What's he qualified? So he, his background was in um, computers, like old school computer engineering. Okay. Yeah, so he was working in that in... Um, in uh, at a little shop not too not too far from the uni campus. That was pretty cool. And our last our last year we were there. We we're in the village for most of that time. Our very last year there, we got an apartment in Jersey City, which was pretty cool. <laughs> Bit cheaper than Greenwich Village, so we'd catch like the park train under the Hudson River to and from work. But it was great. Really good train. It's like ten minutes to to where we were going. So so that was a it's an important uh, factor in there as well. Um, but I guess because of that, you know, we talked about the idea of. I could potentially have, um, you know, being married to an American, I suppose, explore that, right? It, it's it's not quite as easy as people you know, people think, oh, you're married to an American, then it kind of happens instantly. <laughs> not at all. It's yeah. still a giant cumbersome process, probably as it should be to some degree. Um, but, again, I didn't um, – I was – let's just say, again, as, I, as much as I was loving New York – Starting to deal with the realities of living in a place like America, um, and I will say it's it's a lot more challenging now than it was then. But things like healthcare, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, things like you know um, guns, guns. Um, <laughs> although very lucky, never had any run-ins with that myself. But um, you know, there, there are whilst it's a remarkable country and that's an incredible city, uh, you know, there are, they've got a lot of social problems. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it that way. Um, we, and they were starting we, to really become more and more apparent uh, and starting to sort of make me and the more and I was getting older obviously and, and looking at that I think with, with a more holistic perspective and thinking okay well do I want to stay here long term I don't know so yeah and having those conversations with my husband and what was he what his thoughts so he was he was uh, already I think falling a bit out of love with um, he loved New York as well and and, uh, and obviously and me thankfully <laughs> um, but he was also falling out of love with um with America, I suppose, mm. and it, the the promise of America, and starting to see, um, you know, not to not to get too much into the, I guess, the, the the political side of it, but you know, there's a lot of problematic seeds sown through American history that you know are uh, continue to bear some really problematic fruit for for I, the US. Um, and they were stuck. You know, like he, he was seeing that. <laughs> so what was that, Pete? I said I can sum it up for you. <laughs> we, Go on. We had a con- we had a Canadian guest on a few months ago, Celine, 
And she told us, <laughs> America's a great, America's a. Lo- <laughs> she said America's a lovely place if it weren't for the Americans. Yes. Yeah. yeah look, it's um, you know, I'm all for rugged individualism and exceptionalism, but <laughs> but I think that uh, there is something that is that is uh, there is a dissonance between that and. I guess, more of a civic consciousness, if that makes sense, that is more common in places like Australia and England. And, yeah, we, we, we just approach, I think, ourselves and our relationship to our communities and society a little differently. That's not like, look, there are plenty of incredible communities in America that totally get it, particularly at the grassroots level and are just full of amazing people. But you're right, I think certainly at the, the governmental sort of level and the, the regulatory level, you know, they don't like, they don't think civic first, right? So so mm. they're, they're much more comfortable saying, yeah, you, of course you've got a right to have an AK-47 stapled to your head if that's what you want. Um, <laughs> it doesn't matter if that could threaten yeah. a bunch of other people. Whereas I think, you know, broadly speaking, uh, Aussies would be like, well, it's from a common sense perspective, um, you know, yay for individual rights and all, but maybe that's not best for the whole here, right? So I think we just look at things in a more civically minded holistic uh, way sometimes and it's the same with things like healthcare where I think we we are pretty comfortable no matter where we fall on political spectrums mm. saying you know we yeah we're pretty people deserve decent healthcare mm. that's kind of that's fundamental right you know exactly the right model to get there we can debate but you know we we're we're comfortable saying that we're aligned on that whereas you can't even make that assumption in America it's you know mm. if you talk to, to, to a lot of people say well no they're just you know it's not. It's up to me and only me. But you see, I, I have a lot of American friends uh, through my, you know, as Pete knows, through through my association with lawyers associated worldwide. Um, I, I would say, without exception, they are all incredibly lovely people. Yep. And I would say most of them share. If uh, I can't even think of anyone that I've spoken to that doesn't share those same values that we, that we you just talked about. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I, I guess that's what I mean by, by dissonance. And not to throw all the blame at government, but it's kind of all the fault of government. <laughs> I mean, I think you're exactly right. And I look, I have had and still have also a ton of friends and, and, and contacts in the States who, as you say, and really regardless of where they sit on, on most political spectrums and things, also believe in all those things. I think that we're talking about... Um, I said I wasn't going to get political. Now it's all political. Um, but, you know, I think you're talking about a a really broken model of governance over there mm-hmm. that is fundamentally disconnected from the core values that your friends hold and my friends hold. And I think most Americans do hold. Mm-hmm. You know, you can see that in the way their election system plays out, and and, and so many other you know, other facets of their kind of um, political and civic life. You know, it, there is There are disconnects everywhere and, you know, moneyed interest is kind of out of control and there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's a lot of problems that I think are, are causing that disconnect and that fracture that mean that regardless of whether ordinary people kind of can, can, can come together and align on these things, mm. their representative voices can't or won't for various reasons. And so there is that disconnect that makes things like, responsible gun legislation or healthcare for all seemingly out of reach challenges when in reality they're not it's just there's not the will to there's not the will to achieve it in, in you know in the governing um governing kind of bodies um so that's you know my incredibly un, <laughs> unprofessional take on american politics um not don't you think that um... but, but yeah i think that there's like i said that's my observation living there a long time and still talking to people is you're right 
ordinary Americans get it. They're not stupid. But the people in power uh, are far too beholden to special interests and um, like things the way it is. You know, and there's a lot of privilege and power that they're not willing to give up. What were you going to say, Pete? I was just, uh, just uh, as Vanessa was talking, I was just thinking it, it just echoes the words that Terry Mills was telling us the other day where, you know, governments get voted in and politicians get voted in and then, as you said, you know, your words originally during that conversation were when they're in opposition, they sound so promising and their ideas sound so great. But once they get elected, then there's this, this disconnect between the things they talked about beforehand and why they wanted to get into politics and making sure that they get voted back in next time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, Australia, America, there's, you know, we, we're all um, the, the scourge of kind of short-termism, right, the, the, you know, election cycles. And as you say, it's like I, I might come in with the best of intentions, relatively uncorrupted, wanting to do good, but then it... it there is this something breaks somewhere along the way and it's a combination of, you know, of the, of the various components of that system that you're right. Then suddenly, particularly in America where it's all, everything is sort of facilitated through through private dollars, right? Um, so, mm. you know, there's definitely improvements they could make if they wanted to on that front. Um, you know, suddenly I, I have to be, I'm now, it's incumbent on me to, to you know, uh, kind of cosy up to all these moneyed interests if I want to get elected to do the things I do. And they're basically in, permanent election mode there anyway you know whether it's the presidential elections that seem to go on non-stop <laughs> um you know it, it's there's just non it's it is kind of non-stop right so even if you are you've just been elected and you should theoretically should have a bit of a clean slate in front of you and a, a term of office in whatever branch of government to to do some work and to to create some agendas and make some change um immediately you're hijacked and kind of waylaid into conversations about fundraising and, and the next election and everything else. So it's this, you know, forest for trees, be damned, right? It's just this short-term thinking and um, career po- career politicking, right? And I think it's you see this all over the world right now in all sorts of really incredibly harmful ways. Well, let me give you an example of, of a contrast between what you are just talking about and the territory. Yeah. Right? So in, two, in 2011, uh, Lawyers Associated Worldwide mm. um, decided to have a regional meeting in Darwin. And so that meant all the people in the Asia Pacific region would congregate in Darwin. Uh, and at the time, our chairman was from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was tasked with the responsibility of helping to organise this. And Darwin being Darwin, I just went up and uh, one day ran into the then Chief Minister, Paul Henderson. Yep. And I said, Paul, not Mr. Henderson, not Chief Minister, not Governor. Yeah, <laughs> Paul. Not uh, Hendo. Not, <laughs> not even Hendo. Although <laughs> <laughs> I think he prefers that. And I said, Paul, um, this is happening. Uh, do you think you can do something? And he said, Absolutely, we should do something, right? And to cut a long story short, he had that delegation, which was uh, numbered around about 20-odd, mm-hmm. on his balcony in Parliament House for um, pre-dinner drinks, and he gave them all a tour of, of the office and of how um, the Parliament worked uh, in the Territory, and 
the Americans came up to me and said, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you know, Leon, for us to even have had an opportunity to mm. see a senator or a congressperson, we would have had to put somewhere in the order of $50,000 on the table yep. as a donation. Yep, yep, just to get a second of FaceTime, yep. And wow. that's the difference between, I guess, what we've got here that we yeah. take for granted. Oh, so for granted. No, you, you're exactly, you are completely on point. Um, and it is, you know, we see... We see, you know, America is kind of really arguably one of the most acute examples of this, right, in the world right now. It is so, they so have gone so far in terms of that moneyed interest stuff that it's, that's the end of that spectrum now just about before capitalism implodes. Um, And, you know, Australia's federal politics, you know, is, again, riddled with with issues, but um, is not as bad as, as states. There are still, you know, some really good governance frameworks and structures in place that help us avoid that end of the spectrum for now at least um but you're right but then further down the scale is is that is that territory styled way which is so much more about real people relationships and just kind of showing up and getting things done you know and it's there it there is something in sounds too mystical but you know there's, there's something in the air up here and there's something about this place and its people that um, that I I've been really lucky. I've travelled all over the world, you know, through my career doing various things, into tons of different countries, and I've never it's it's I've never found anything like it, right? It never, uh, and it is a love of that and that approach that actually I think ultimately drew me into sort of my my second career in in uh, online community work because it is also about. Um, bringing people together around an idea, a purpose, a movement, uh, an event, a cause, a company, whatever it is, getting the work done um, and championing constructive engagement, right, without a lot of the BS. So let's talk about that. So, so you were in New York. Yes. Uh, you and your husband said that you had enough. What did you do next? Right. So we uh, sort of phased out of New York, I guess. So we sort of, you know, let our let our lease lapse, um, I read it in between jobs, um, sort of Stuart handed in his notice and we decided, yep, we'll come back to Australia and, um, you know, talk about kind of timing of the universe. So we came back um, at the turn of the millennium, so we came back to Australia in 2000, obviously just before you know, September 11, the following year, um, and came back to Darwin initially where we sort of hung out for a bit, um, you know, my mum's still here, um, we sort of wanted to get our bearings, figure out where we wanted to go, what we wanted to do. Um, and at that point, in addition to my theatre career, um, I had been nurturing, I guess, m- mainly a, a sort of a, a professional hobby at that point, um, starting to, you know, I mentioned that X-Files community. Obviously, the internet um, was, was growing and kind of blossoming and people were starting to find all sorts of cool commercial uses for it. Uh, and that space was just really alive and generative with, like, amazing communities and groups of all sorts of different kinds. Um, and so I was in that both as a user, as a member, as a fan of these spaces, um, but then also started to work um, uh, initially as a volunteer and then ultimately paid as yeah, as a as an administrator of some of these groups. So 
not just from a technical point of view, but I guess, you know, kind of helping manage that community and, and bringing them together, you know, figuring out what sort of content programming to run in that space, what those members wanted to get out of that, how, how I could deliver that. Um, and so that without realising it, that was the genesis of my career in community management online community management specifically. So we came back to Australia and I've been doing that along the way. And I um, we decided that we wanted to move to Melbourne or Sydney because that's where, you know, I was like, I think I'm being pulled down south and that's where most of the opportunities are. At that point, I was still um, courting a bit of a career with theatre, but I had definitely fallen a bit out of love with it and was starting to become a little bit more in love with um, that website of things. So I think, you know, the it's interesting. I see a lot of actually a lot of overlap between the work that I've done in theatre and the internet stuff, particularly those early internet days where you know, it might not seem like there's a connection, but you know if you're choreographing or directing a show, particularly you know you're fundamentally you're bringing a group of people together to achieve a common goal. You know there's there's not really any room for ego. You just got to get the work done. Um, and you know you see all colours of humanity at work. You know all, all shades. Um, and you really got to, you become great at reading people and understanding the way people tick and understanding how to motivate them, to lead them, persuade them and get the best out of them. And all of those skills are kind of core to, to community management. So uh, I came, we came back, as I said, to, to, to Darwin. We basically flipped a coin. We didn't really know many people in Sydney or Melbourne. I was like, I don't know, let's see, Melbourne or Sydney? Chose Melbourne. I think we chose right. Um came down um, kind of while we, and while we were sort of getting out, you know, got a place to rent. And I started working, um, I, my first job down there was uh, was uh, at a cinema, similar to my job up in Darwin, while I, while I figured out what I wanted to do. And that was really good. And I quickly found myself working, um, this was a village cinemas down south, working in kind of the digital side of things. So I was working in there, you know, they just launched their website and they were just kind of getting into the digital revolution. <laughs> um, you know, so I was, without coming in with that particular expertise necessarily, I found myself being the one in the room that had had, you know, they would say, oh, ask Vanessa. She knows a bit about the internet. She's sort of been hanging out in line for a long time, longer than most of us. You know, she kind of knows what people do and what they like to see in these on these websites and in these, in these online groups. So I kind of became de facto internet and online community expert in a lot of these, these jobs. Uh, and so I continued to do a bit of theatre work. I directed a couple of shows down south, um, choreographed. So I'd sort of moving more into the production side of things, was really enjoying, enjoying that. But as I say, it was being pulled more and more into this digital side of things. So, um, and that began to really take off. So from, from Village, I then got a job um, at a, there's an online creative hub called Arts Hub, which is um, it's kind of a national website arts industry stuff, uh, jobs, news, online community, uh, and I was uh, became managing editor of that for a long time, so it was about four or five years down south, um, where I got to both indulge my editorial uh, kind of uh, flights of fancy, so I used to so write a lot of content, tell a lot of stories, do a lot of interviews, um, and it was kind of, that was a perfect fusion of, you know, my, my background in the arts and my um, journalistic aspirations and my, my online aspirations. Um, and a big part of that is you know, a paid membership website. So to make that work, you've got to understand, you've got to get a really strong membership offering, you've got to build online community dynamics, you've got to create a sense of belonging, a sense of value, and really make that indispensable for people. Um, so again, that's where I got to really hone hone that skill. Um, and then that really blossomed into a career. And uh, I guess since then, in varying forms, um, you know, I've, I've managed to, to sort of specialise in this online community space. And it was 
knew enough at the time that, you know, I was fortunate to kind of be an early mover and shaker in that area. So, you know, I got to work with lots of different startups, lots of big corporates, all sorts of organisations um, in Melbourne and Sydney and around Australia who either have existing online communities who wanted to do something new or different with them or help them move in a different direction or who were interested in, mainly, who were interested in, okay, so, you know, this, and this is also around the time social media was coming along, which adds a new dimension to the online community space. Cool, you know, we, we like this idea of interacting with audiences and building something more than just a passive audience. What does that look like? How, how can our organisation harness that commercially? How can we do something cool and create, how can we maybe co-create products with our community? Um, so then from, from Arts Hub, that space, I went to Lonely Planet for a long time, the travel publishers, and managed their big famous um, Thorntree travel forums for a long, long time. And that was probably the most, the biggest, most comprehensive online community I've ever, I've ever run. Uh, and then over the years, uh, realised that I thought, I'm doing all this work and this is a really interesting space and I don't really know if I'm the only one doing this sort of job because it's still, even though it definitely was maturing and I was getting a lot of interest and requests from different businesses saying, oh, we want to do this and we'll see the work you're doing. You know, you'd look in kind of, you know, the, the, the classifieds and it, it, there's not a lot of call at that stage for community managers. It was still a, definitely still an emergent kind of nascent space. Um, so I sort of put out a call to see if there were any other people doing this work. And this is this is how I guess the industry side of it started to bubble along. Um, and so while I was at Learning Planet, I held a bit of a roundtable, got, got, put out my feelers and we had folks from... Um, from uh, Redbubble, which is a little, little uh, creative arts internet startup. Um, they sell, sell really cool uh, artistic commerce. Um, ABC, Fox Sports, um, Fairfax, they run Australia's biggest parenting forums, the Central Baby. So about 10 of us all came together. So, okay, so have any of us been in any other industry groups like this? No? Okay, so this is kind of a new industry we're all on the cusp of right here. And talked, you know, it was kind of that that first session was, you know, part group therapy, part swap war stories, um, kind of, you know, exchange tips, um, definitely a lot of group therapy. Oh, you, you deal with trolls? We deal with trolls too. What's that look like for you? you know? um, and finding that despite the fact we came from all very different industries, travel, health, publishing, sports, media, you know, there was a lot of similarity at the heart of what we were doing. Um, and it was different from pure marketing and it was different from, um, pure sales, you know, so it existed in this space between that if done well, impacts all of those things, but is a distinct emergent discipline that really draws on, you know, kind of old school community engagement and a bit of sociology and a bit of other stuff, you know, so it's this, this hybrid discipline for the 21st century. So that then, so I'm just telling my whole life story here, that, um, that then grew, and we had more of those roundtables and more and more people were coming along. And that actually got so big that um, myself and one of the um, regular attendees at that, um, Alison Mytalk, who was managing a central baby over at Fairfax, she and I decided to create an entire conference off the back of this because it was snowballing and growing so much, which is called Swarm. So now, 10, 11 years on, we, we, we co-founded Australian Community Managers, which is basically like the national peak network for this this, this career, this space, um, and Swarm, which is our annual conference. So we've been having that every year since. Um, we're just heading into heading into a decade of it. Um, and so now we've got, you know, we know that there's about 5,000 plus professional online community specialists in Australia um, who work right across the board, you know, NGOs, government, big brands, Telstra, everything in between. Um, and we it is a unique discipline. So the work that we do now is about, I guess, helping create best practice for that space, um, providing training and resources, 
um, connecting, you know, with our international peers as well, because it's quite, it's a bit more of a mature industry in the States and over in Europe and Asia. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of just helping with things like codes of ethics and certification and just, yeah, what, what do we all need to, to help professionalise the space? Doing some research to understand who's doing this work, what does that mean? And figuring out, um, particularly when things like, you know, all the debates that we hear and all the news that we hear around social media and online toxicity and all, all the stuff that sort of sits at the cusp of our digital lives, community managers are often right on the front line of that. So we're often this interface between the organisation, whoever that is, and the users on the other side of that. Um, and where there are community managers, generally, they're in a, they, they create really healthy online spaces and you find that a lot of the problems happen when there aren't community managers in the loop or the mix and you've got companies that just go straight to users with no specialist intermediation in between. Um, and so, but certainly we're in a position to have a view, uh, an informed view on, on a lot of these issues. So we found that, you know, as this industry work has developed, we're talking with um, researchers, with policymakers, with you know, human rights commissioner, with, with scholars, with all sorts of people who are, um, I guess, uh, creating policy or uh, doing research or just kind of interrogating our digital lives, what's working, what's going wrong, how do we need to fix things, you know, who can tell us what's actually happening. And we are, we are sort of, in a way, stewards in that space. So so we kind of have a voice at that table, I guess. So sorry, that was a really long paragraph. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but that is where everything has kind of taken me. So I still choreograph on the side when I get time. I still choreograph shows. Um, but generally, I've put that part of my life to bed and I'm really happy about it. And I love what I'm doing now because it lets me support um, people doing great work and communities at scale of all sorts all over the world and all over the country, which is amazing. So who do you sorry, for, sorry, Vanessa, I just missed that. Could you say that again, please? Sure. Sorry. I was just saying I really love what I'm doing now because it lets me support um, kind of good people doing good work and communities that I get, it helps me scale what I'm doing in a way that I kind of couldn't before, if that makes sense. So I, no, I, no I, I, meant, I meant the whole bit. <laughs> the whole bit? Pizza, okay, pizza, 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 I get you, Pete, yeah. <laughs> Your listeners are like, man, she finally shut up. <laughs> it's terrible, um, it's terrible so when so you can't I'm see not... the look on my face when I ask that. <laughs> <laughs> So look, I've gone from working from from uh, work for in house for a few different organisations along the way. I uh, so I mentioned Lowly Planet, worked for Australia Post, building there on the community for a while. Um, Envato, which is a really successful Australian startup um, down in Melbourne, their whole business model is online community, uh, which is going to be a hugely profitable startup, one of the best in the country. Um, and um, and now just full time consulting. So now I just you know so I work with this you know this peak organisation run the annual conference um, and, you know, kind of a, a community gun for hire. So, you like. <laughs> so, so you work for this peak organisation. What's it called? Australian Community Managers. Australian Yeah. Community so that's – um, so we uh, – my co-founder, Alison, who I mentioned, she and I founded that. Right. Um, so that, that I do that and run the conference and consult privately as well full-time now. So so what started as, a, you know, hanging out on an X-Files fan forum today <laughs> has ultimately yeah. become, you know, and gone from being a bit of a side hustle – that I was doing while doing other things to, to now really being, um, I think, as the face of business is changing, as the face of leadership is changing and people are interested in things like distributed models of leadership, um, you know, uh, intra-organisational collaboration. Yeah, people are kind of interested in unlocking the people part of all this stuff that in a way that they haven't before. 
which ultimately means it's a really rich time for people that build community or help people build community, whether that's online, offline, or a bit of everything, right? Um, and, you know, you know all about that with your global global network. So these are, you know, it's kind of a halcyon era, I think, for this space. So I'm really excited to be, you know, we've done a lot of work already over 10 years to help professionalise the area in Australia. Um, but I think that it's really just the beginning of what, what we can accomplish. Are they teaching university courses for this stuff now? Oh, it's a really, I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, they've just begun. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so I helped, um, I helped author and taught the, the, uh, the first of these um, in, at the University of Sydney. Mm. So this January, January 2019, um, I, I worked with um, a great professor there, Dr Fiona Martin. Shout out to you, Fiona, <laughs> um, who is really on the forefront of this space as well. She saw the need as well. and We've been talking for years about this. So um, she, uh, she kind of um, uh, commissioned me to, to help create the first um, postgraduate unit in this dedicated subject, basically. Um, and we deployed that um, uh, back in January. Now now it's a regular unit, which is fantastic. Um, and also over at the University of Melbourne, uh, another great professor, Dr Jennifer Beckett, who's also in this space. Um, the two of them are like the two academic heroes of our world. Um, she has been running also for a few years an online community management um, postgrad unit as well. So there's not full degrees yet. They're, I absolutely think there will be soon very soon. Yeah, there's kind of professional online courses overseas, there's a few things, but it is largely this, it's still a bit of an invisible space, right? And I think because it struggles because there's also a lot of confusion between that and social media because people think, well, isn't that, you know, Facebook page management or isn't that like social media management? And look, there can be a bit of overlap, but it's quite different. You know, with social media marketing and building audiences on social and optimising for that, you know, is a whole different skill set. It's a whole different technical skill set. Um, you know, I think if you've got some community management skills, that tends to make you even better at that work and vice versa. And often you might be building a community atop a social network, but they, they're not interchangeable. You know, interacting in a social network versus interacting in a community of purpose or practice is quite different. Um, and it really just it depends on the context. So, yeah, community management was kind of on the rise. Social media kind of came along and I think partly muddied and distracted that that discourse a little bit, that, that conversation about what this is. Um, but we're kind of coming out the other side of that now, I think. Um, but it is still incredibly nascent. That, but I, I maintain that it's, you know, I think particularly in an, in, in an age where, you know, we're, we're figuring out how to kind of, you know, um, AI is on the rise and we're going to be living and working with machines in a whole bunch of really new contexts, this is a space that um, this this field is fundamentally human and requires the human in the loop um, and uh, will be so for a, a long time. And I think it's actually a really interesting, definitively 21st century occupation yeah. um, that I think is only going to grow, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's, you, know, you see uh, people that used to, used to be in charge back in the day of managing the company internet, which at one point was a relatively static non-interactive kind of role, you know, they'd be in charge of updating the knowledge on there, maintaining that, maybe fielding maybe fielding some interaction around the organisation, but just due to the technology of the day, you know, not tremendously interactive. These days, that's often an online community if it's done well and the tools are right and they approach it that way. And you've got people that are building really fantastic online communities inside organisations then external-facing ones with customers or different groups. You've got companies using online communities to ideate and help them build new products and, and different knowledge. You've got 
customer support communities, you know, you've got peer support community, you get everything in between, um, and social media happening amidst it all. So it's just a really interesting dynamic landscape. And I think particularly these days with all the problems that social media is facing, I think that you're going to see people get migrating back a little bit to a slightly older definition of online community, which is still, you know, going to let them do approach it in any way they want on any tools and any platforms that they want. But a more, a little bit more purist approach where, um, you know, you're not necessarily building your business um, for Facebook, if that makes sense. So you're not building your audience so that Mark Zuckerberg can have it. You're maybe putting up your own forums or you may maybe building it in such a way that um, you have a bit more agency and control over the purpose of that community, how the value that it brings to your organisation, the tangible business benefits, the commercial benefits. You need to be able to control that to actually get any value out of bothering to do that. Um, and social media is not always the best at letting you do that. Hey. Yo. Are you taking all this in, mate? <laughs> oh, look, I am. And the, over- the overwhelming thought I've been having for the last 10 minutes is that I wish that my side of the digital space would get their act together like this as well because there's too many cowboys and yahoos in it, but it, it's hard to control. I love the fact that it's happened in, in a certain space, though, because it means there's the the ability for it to happen if people collaborate and get their acts together. So I was thinking about Professor Kafkas. He may very well be, <laughs> may very well be operating without, without a qualification right now in this space. <laughs> <laughs> without, a, without a qualification with a certified renegade sticker. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, a bit of renegades or necessary sometimes <laughs> yeah, yeah but i mean it's interesting because you know you're absolutely right the the forums um you know predate what we know now and and you know it's funny because you you were talking about things before and and i thought of you leon when when vanessa was talking about how um you know she she'd been on forums so therefore she knew everything internet it's a bit like when you go to someone's house and they tell you that they've got a problem with their Wi-Fi. Just because you work in digital marketing doesn't mean you can fix their freaking router. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Well, yeah. it's, uh, Vanessa, I have to say, um, I'm actually feeling a little exhausted listening to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's a terrible takeout. <laughs> I didn't mean to Exhausted because you've actually opened my mind up to – such I, I didn't even know this stuff existed yeah no look well, you're not alone so as much as i said you know we've got it's a growing occupation we've got a bunch of people doing it now we've got a peak body stuff's moving along it is still small and it is still new ultimately right and just because i've been doing this a long time it's still really really new um so a lot of people don't know about it and i think you know that is an opportunity uh, and that is you know, kind of circling back a bit to what you said before about what makes Darwin different and what makes Darwin tick. Yeah, I firmly believe that one of the reasons I like this work and I think I'm reasonably good at it um, is because of that that bit of Darwin DNA in there. I think that places, businesses, people, groups who approach things people first, people centric, that is the future. And a lot of the current models are out there, you know, uh, economic models, business models, have maybe they started in that place but have certainly been perverted over the years to become a bit upended where people are certainly not at the centre of things, if, if they're at all. 
Um, and you, I think, you know, you're going to see a lot of those models, you already are seeing a lot of those models under threat and under challenge. And, you know, you're talking about, just to get really dramatic for a minute, it's kind of a war for the, the war for the future that we want to write right now if you know what I mean like what 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 do we want the future to look like do we want it to be a future where there's three companies on the planet um, who might you know give, deliver tremendous you know I'm not going to name names but you know deliver amazing convenience remarkable intelligence um, you know thanks to surveillance capitalism know everything about us you know doing a lot we live in luxury like there's like those people in uh, the movie Wally, if you've seen that we whiz around in our little comfy armchairs and that's that um, you know, or do we want um, to use all these amazing tools to get even better at the human stuff? Um, you know, and how do we use that to liberate us to return to some of the stuff that we maybe let slip along the way because we got a bit busy or a bit distracted or had to work for a living or, you know, as, and, and sort of as those other economic models took over and we all sort of fell into those patterns of behaviour, We've lost some of, you know, we've lost some community spirit. We've lost some of that grassroots stuff along the way, just as a, as a planet, as a society. I'm interested in how technology and, and things like AI and all these new, you know, new fields and new, um, new kind of forces coming into to being. How can they unlock some some of the stuff we've lost that maybe is worth reclaiming or re-exploring? Um, and how, what are some new realities that they can help shape for us? And I, I guess the main thing I'm trying to say here is I don't, you know, I, I, I really push back as much as I, obviously technology is a huge part of what I do and who I am now, and I love it, you know, and I watch as much Netflix as the next person, um, but don't think we should be held hostage to technological determinism. I don't think that necessarily we want to just go, yep, Silicon Valley, you write our future. I'm good with that. Um, at the very least, let's have an, a, a spirited discussion about that. At the very least, you know, let's, you know, get more voices in the mix. Let's get more inclusive voices in the mix. You know, do, do we really want a bunch of white dudes in Silicon Valley deciding the shape of the future? Because that's certainly the way we've been headed. Um, and it's, look, it's yielded some great stuff. And it's really thrown up some massive problems as well, which we're sort of now, now grappling with and thankfully really talking about, which is excellent. So... I just think we're in a really interesting time in history right now and a really kind of could be a bit of a, you know, kind of fork in the road moment. And, I'm you know, I'm part of my work and part of what gets me out of bed every morning is wanting to be in those rooms where there's, those discussions are happening um, to be a different perspective, to be a different voice, to say what's the community dimension on this um, have you considered this? What are the ethics of that? You know, just one of many voices that should be there and a growing tribe of voices that should be there. So it's not just the same people authoring and writing that future, if that makes sense. So I think that, you know, technology is great because it lets us break the rules and come up with whole new ways of doing things. And I think that while we feel like there's a not a lot new about the world, ultimately a lot of the things driving us behind the scenes are kind of the same as they ever were. But do they have to be? Can we be driven by other forces? Can we define value in a different way, for example? You know, how, how do we, you know, must we confer, you know, is there an entirely different way to think about economics? Probably is. Let's let's explore all sorts of really radical, interesting, bizarre theory. Like, now is the time to do that because for, possibly for the first time in history, we are connected enough as a planet and have enough interesting tools at our disposal to maybe bring some of those ideas to life. 
you know, it's not that anyone, I don't have a view necessarily on one pathway that's the right way, but I just don't want to see humanity become complacent. Like, yeah, cool, we'll just keep on keeping on in the way we have been. Let's let's shake it up, you know, and I think there's a lot of cool people all over the world doing that work, um, and that those are the rooms I want to be in, and those, that's, as I said, that's what gets me in the bed every morning. Give me an example of, of a cool idea that has, you know, that has captured your imagination over the last little while. Sure. Um, that's a good idea. Um, well, he, okay, so it's it's not even a particularly new idea, but um, so, for example, the stuff that's happening in um, the energy sector where you've got, um, and I'm by no means an energy expert, disclaimer, <laughs> um, where you've got... Um, Communities, and this is happening a bit in, in, in America, it's happening in places in Europe, and I think it's happening in a couple of places in Australia. Um, I'd like to see more of it. Communities, you know, whether it's a suburb or a little area, some, a remote geography, who are like, you know what, we reject, from, we reject the reality that we're hearing from a government or a single energy provider that there's only one way to do this. We're going to decouple ourselves, go off-grid entirely, build a localised renewable network, have a shared bank of power that we all draw from. We'll create, you'll we'll, we'll use technology to make that function. We we'll use technology to make that transparent and visible to each other, to the community, and we'll run it ourselves. And they create, you know, not, not even new forms of governance, actually tapping into really old forms of communal governance to make that happen. That's really cool. That's really interesting. And doing so in a way that, you know, is kind of um, quote unquote breaking the system. Um, but, you know, is giving them everything they need um, and, you know, often producing much more sustainable outcomes for yeah. their community and others. Have you been involved in that? Uh, so, unfortunately, my in my community where I live is not doing that, though I'd love to see that happen. Um, but I've, I've talked to people involved in these projects. I've helped some of them build some online um, online community components of this work. Um, but but not, yeah, they said not the, the technology or the energy side. But yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic. So that's, I guess, one small example. You know, you've got stuff like... Um, you know, blockchain, which definitely is a bit overhyped, but, you know, but the idea of that as a technology that lets us muck around with trust and social structures um, in new ways, that's really interesting as well. So how can you create, you know, distributed ledgers to do certain things, whether it's around energy or the, the legal industry or anything else that is, I don't know, takes, maybe it removes middlemen, maybe it, um, you know, maybe, it, as I said, restores ownership or autonomy to the community in an interesting way. Um, I'm interested in the idea of like data sovereignty as well, which is a big topic of conversation yes. in the human rights community. Yes. Um, I was at this really incredible conference, um, which I highly encourage everyone to go to if they can, called mm. RightsCon over in Tunis in June this year. Um, it happens once a year. It's in different cities every year. Um, and it's all sort of the, it's about digital rights in, in this mm. century. And it's it's fantastic. And there's you know, 3,000 people from all over the world, met incredible people, you know, dealing with some of the most challenging problems on the face of the earth but god they're so inspiring and resilient and just just blooming away um and that was a big one you know i was there really to uh, so I'm, I'm doing my i've just begun my doctorate in in ai because um, i'm really interested in pursuing that space um and i was there really with that wearing my little stud student hat <laughs> um but uh met lots of you know sitting sitting in on you know panels of various in, indigenous representatives from different countries talking about the challenges with data sovereignty um, and then talking about things like, um, you know, how, uh, I'll give you an example, there was, there was uh, someone from a country who this particular community um, had a very specific and very uh, uh, localised way of 
constituting their identity. So it was and it was kind of in relationship to the community. Um, and it wasn't, you know, through um, traditional kind of uh, Western mechanisms like IDs and passports and that sort of stuff. So there was a, it was a particularly Indigenous ID um, in relation to their tribe that they had. So they had developed a company had been hired to come in and help develop a system to make to do that so that they could be um, identified and be, I suppose, counted in things like censuses or, um, you know, have, have voting rights, which on the surface, those were all great things. However, private company had done this work, had then gone and sold that data without the consent of that community oh, wow. to a machine learning company to use to, you know, build machine learning capability and feed AI systems. Um, and then, and that obviously is, you know, so that then they became aware of that after the fact. Um, so, you know, that, that right there, that's talking about a 21st century problem. <laughs> so you've got technology being a, kind of used in a way that could be kind of a cool solution to a really unique problem. Um, but then because of the confluence of like private, private companies and uh, data rights and the whole rest of it, it becomes really complicated. So, and those, so though that, uh, that tribe is like, well, how do we, you know, okay, we want to do this. We want to interface with technology and use it for our own purposes to, to help our community. But how do we retain sovereignty in that? Um, and there's no easy answer for that right now. But the most important thing is to listen to the people who this affects. You know, you, I'm sitting here talking about this, you know, don't listen to me. <laughs> listen, to, listen to the people who, who it is affecting. Well, it affects all of us. I mean, Pete, have you ever heard the concept of data sovereignty before? Well, um, the concept of it was broached in that Sam Harris podcast that we listened to a few months ago because people understand that, that their data is being captured when they fill in forms and, you know, when, when they accept the new link now that says, you know, I understand that there's cookies being used with this website. But what, what they don't understand is that it's also being captured on every app you use, on every website you, you go to, every Google search you do. And anytime you're online in any way, the, the information's being captured. It's just that people don't realise it. Um, with with a lot of the, the, the internet or the, the web-based platforms that they're using. Yeah, and it's like we were saying before, it's that trade-off between, you know, I think most people are quite happy and keen to accept the convenience and the affordances of, cool, the system's learned a lot about me, so it's made my life better or my sort of life as a consumer better anyway in X, Y, Z ways. That's great. But what about all those unforeseen consequences? And I think one of the problems here is that notion of, like, kind of like the follow-through consent. So this is a problem with informed consent, I think, in the 21st century because it's one thing to say, okay, you've given me, you know, a big, long, you know, user licensing agreement with a bunch of fine print. Let's say I actually read the thing. Um, let's say, okay, I understand right now I'm going to tick yes, I'm going to sign over my rights to use this thing in this context in these ways. And I have a good under, I have a relatively, you know, I think, and I think that's actually kind of rare, this scenario would happen anyway, but let's say I do that. Okay, but that's a moment in time. That's this very particular context where I'm saying, yep, use the thing to give me the service. But then baked into those agreements, as we all know, or as most of us know, you know, is a bunch of language that lets those companies kind of have licenses in perpetuity to, you know, move with markets and do new things. So I've used that thing in that moment in time and then gone about my life. But then six months from now, still you know, that, that company goes, oh, cool, yeah, we've got a company that wants to, let's say it's a photo sharing website. I've got a company that wants to pay us a lot of money to use all of our photo data to teach 
AI systems, and this, you know, machine learning is a big part of this, you know, which is in mm. terms of the data space right now, where big globs of data all over the world are being fed into these machines through all sorts of arrangements and licensing agreements with companies. Um, usually, and there's no, you know, there's no community. So there's nothing that I get as someone who wants to use that service. Usually, I'm not going to get a little letter or a little email saying, FYI, <laughs> for your information, we've just, just shared your photos along with all of our other users with this company. If you maybe don't want them used for that purpose, um, just let us know and we'll remove your data set from that. Or, or even even just an FYI, this is happening, right? So there's no transparency. Because you agreed to it six no years ago. That's right. That's right. And, of yeah. course, the way, you know, Moore's Law, being Moore's Law, um, these things are going to evolve. They're going to iterate all the time. And it's on the one hand, it's fair to say it's unreasonable to ask any company to know the different permutations that they might, you know, different things they might want to do with this data down the track. They can't predict that. Of course they can't predict that. But I don't think it's unreasonable for us to come together and figure out a better way to, to let people continue, like a, yeah, a continuous opt-in to this process or this notion of, um, you know, there's an idea being explored in the academic community around um, you know, kind of uh, the, the, the time-boxed consent. So, you know, I do consent for you to use this in all the ways that you stipulate for the next 12 months, let's say, you know, while I'm using this service. or uh, But then there's, a, there's actually an expiry date on that consent. And that's not really a notion we entertain right now. Most of the time, these consents that we sign over are in perpetuity forever. Timeless. Yeah. Timeless, that's right. And that's, it, it, you know, that's too damn long. We don't know what's going to happen. And I think correct. Of, yeah, it, it's just, so it's such a muddy, complicated space, you know, and you've got, you know, and I heard a, there's a, the, a, a scholar who, who, uh, talks about this uh, beautifully, you know, she explains that, you know, when it comes to things like AI and machine learning, the power is in the aggregate, right? So it's, you know, from an AI point of view, my little bit of, you know, as much as I might and, and should have rights and visibility over, like, my own data, my own identifying details, my images, whatever that might be, my biometric data, you know, ultimately, my individual data set isn't that useful to an AI system or some machine learning? However, mean times a million, you know, a million people, they're, they're, when we're all together in the big data pot, that's powerful. Then that becomes a, a really incredible, uh, a bunch of power that can be used for a whole lot of good and a whole lot of not good, depending on the user. Uh, you know, and we're already seeing all over the world, you know, governments and organisations are using using these systems for some really subversive and some really suppressive purposes. Um, but again, it's like it's not, you know, if you separate it out, and again, that's the problem with the notion of individual consent. A bunch of individuals desperately might consent, but the power and the problems a lot of the time come from when you put it all together. So what I'm doing with my research, the, the doctorate I've just started, is, is actually investigating a bit of that idea around um, you know, what's the community dimension of all this? You know, so what's the communal dimension? Can, is there an idea that we could be exploring around the idea of communal consent? Um, does that exist? Should it exist? A collective consent? Um, you know, and how are these these AI systems and machine learning tools and I guess machine assistants and all these interventions now, how is that, how are algorithms kind of affecting different communities? Um as a, as a whole, not just the individual users, because there's some really good work and good research out there and people exploring all the individual stuff, but less so maybe on the communal side of things. So that's where my particular interest lies because of my background in online community. But, yeah, it's a really interesting problem. And I think, you know, this 
the the data consent piece, you know, is is such a big one. You know, there was a case um, a little while ago. Um, I, unfortunately, I've forgotten the name of the, the players involved. Maybe good that I don't remember. But you had a, it was a photo sharing site, um, and you had um, uh, I don't know. It wasn't a apologies. I got that wrong. I know what it was. It was it, this over in the states. You had a uh, the Department of Corrections, the justice system. Um, they had a bunch of photographs of prisoners and a bunch of photographs of people who had passed away in custody. So photos of, of dead bodies, which is, is pretty grim. Um, this was in their systems as, as part of their normal record keeping and practices. They had sold that data for profit to a machine learning company. <laughs> so, uh, and the uh, obviously those people unable to consent because <laughs> they're either incarcerated or no longer walking around. Um, so that brings up a whole bunch of complicated issues. But then in the cases mm -hmm. where there were um, living, you know, uh, surviving family members, they weren't involved in this process either. So, yeah, and you, you could say, well, that'd be too complicated. But well, tough, I think, you know, <laughs> I just, that's a, that's a pretty extreme example. But, you know, I think that's a really good example of, is that really how we want to? Is that what we, how we want to build the future? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think we can do better than that. So you know, we need to um, work on frameworks where stuff like that maybe isn't allowed to happen. Maybe there's some checks and balances around whether, like I said, it's time box consent or um, different, just different ways of approaching how all this data is moving around, so that um, more people have visibility, more people have agency. And again, I don't think there's an easy answer, but we just need to keep having the conversation. And look, we are, there's heaps of people talking about it, which is great. Uh, and there are lots of good ethical frameworks that already exist or that people are developing. I think the challenge is going to be, you know, that the divide between private and public and kind of, you know, particularly when you've got big monopolies at work and big monopolistic forces, if they don't have to cooperate, if, if they're in a position to continue unabated, why would they necessarily? So, you know, what's their motivation to sort of stop, readjust their business model um, and adopt perhaps arguably more ethical practices. You know, obviously I think that'd be great. It'd be in their best interest. It might be the moral thing to do. Um, but that's a challenging question, you know, when we've got these big digital players that control most of our lives. Well, on that note, I've got to tell you, <laughs> my, my brain is utterly full. I don't know. What am, <laughs> where are you at, Pete? Sorry, guys. We ran the gamut, didn't we, from Broadway to yeah, yeah. monopolistic well, robots. One of the issues with consent, and we, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast or whether we talked about this privately, Leon, a while ago, but there's there's potentially a whole lot of lawsuits waiting to happen because there's some fellows in the US who did a two-year study into um, consent policies through various online mediums, and the reality is that what they worked out was, one, nobody reads them anyway. That everyone just yeah. ticks the box and moves on. Yeah. And two, these guys spent the two years reading through all of the different things that people would ordinarily in their day agree to, whether it's Facebook terms of conditions, uh, terms of service, whether it's, you know, social media, whatever it is you're signing up for, photo sharing, whatever it might be, no one reads them. And even if they do, which these guys did, that was their one mission, was to read all of these normal terms of service. 
you couldn't understand them even if you did read them because they're ambiguous, the yeah. different parts turn on each other, and they're, they're predicting it'll be an issue because somebody will eventually take them to court and an, a, a lawyer will eventually argue it is not reasonable to assume that anybody could understand this. There's got to be a better way to get consent. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, you're dead right. A lot of them are bamboozly by design, right? That's, that's how they're engineered. Uh, and I think... Yeah, I think you're right. We're going to have a whole – there's a lot of – all the stuff, all the foundations we've laid in the last sort of 10 to 15 years of the digital revolution, a lot of great stuff, but we've laid a lot of uh, a landmine that I think are just now starting to detonate. So, you know, I think that's yeah. – maybe sounds ominous, but I think the good thing is that maybe that can, you know, break apart some crappy ways of doing things and, and mm. lead us to some better ways of doing things, better ways of asking for consent, better ways of having some of these conversations and uh, better ways of doing business, you know. And I think, um, you know, in terms of what I do, I think community building and um, kind of, you know, facilitating relationships is going to be right at the heart of that. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that you touched on was that, at this point in time, you've got these monoliths, and we'll use Facebook as an example because I guess they've been in the news, but, you know, they've got these monoliths that have these rules and regulations in place which are completely and utterly unenforceable at this point in time. Yeah. So, you're here in Darwin. I am. Visiting your mother. I am, yes, visiting my lovely mum and hanging out and doing Darwin things. I always find coming home really rejuvenating. Like it, I say to a friend, you know, it's like the weather here, even in the dry when it's a bit cooler, it's like a big hand from the sky that like just goes, slow down, <laughs> slow your roll. You know, and you can probably hear from how animated I am. You know, I, I run around, I'm busy, I do a lot of stuff. So it's really good to have like the Darwinian reminder of slow your roll, just breathe. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, kind of coming back to town always does that. It's always really um, really life-giving, which is great. Mm. Well, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's amazing um, to be here. Thanks for letting me talk your ear off. That's all right. You've uh, given us a lot to think about. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you again uh, once you're through your PhD or, or if yes. you're getting through it because... <laughs> I think the, the, the work that you're doing is, is very, very important. Yeah, so, thank uh, you. I, I think so. I think it's in a, in a, um, there's a lot of people doing in, in this space right now. I think it's, um, yeah, it's an interesting and needed area for sure. Hmm. Over to you, Pete. Sorry, mate. <clears throat> a little, slight little glitch there. Um, just repeat that question for me, please. What question? <laughs> we, we're just throwing to you to end with a bang. Oh, good. I've got I've got three quick fire questions for you. Sure, I'll, I promise to be brief. Not, believe it or not, it's not related to AI. Awesome. <laughs> what was what was the the biggest name production that you were ever in? Oh man! All right, I was in a production of Can Can with Kevin Klein in the US. Wow. Question number two: What was the highlight of that whole Broadway career? Whew, that's rough. Um. Man. You've got five seconds or less. Oh, no. Ah! <laughs> okay, chicken way out, but, like, honest to God, just walking down that New York street every day because, like, you run into famous people everywhere. The, yeah, that yeah. city has a pulse that is just irresistible, mm-hmm. and that, a, that New York feeling is unbeatable. Yeah. That's a perfect answer, and it leads to my last question. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether it was just walking down the street or whether it was professional or whatever. 
<laughs> Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Oh, geez. Uh, been lucky. I've met a few. I don't know. See, this is really subjective because famous fine. to one is not famous to another. Well, right, well I, did, we... I did run into Bruce Willis in the middle of the street filming Die Hard uh, 2 or 3. Uh, two, 3. 3 in New York. In the middle of my degree, he was, like, blocking the street. And we all had to get to school. And we're like, Bruce, get out of the way. <laughs> um, but he was very lovely. And I uh, accidentally bumped into Janine Garofalo while shopping once. But, um, yeah, I'd say wow. Bruce Willis is probably a pretty big star. So, let's say Bruce He's Willis. Pretty, yeah. And that was... He was uh, as, and as a Moonlighting fan from back in the 80s, that was actually pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> That really is showing your age, Vanessa. <laughs> no, I am, I am ageless. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I wear my eighties Genesis with a badge of honor. Uh, cheers. Well, thank thank you very much for joining us. As Leon said, um, yeah, there's too much to think about think about in that, but that that was amazing on so many fronts. Thanks, Matt. Well, it was really uh, thank you guys both, um, Pete and Leon, for, for having me. It's um awesome to talk to you. And Adrian was right. You guys are both fantastic. I love the podcast. You know, I think this is. It's very cool what you're doing, bringing together people with, you know, kind of the relationships to the territories of the territory, seeing what they're doing out in the world, how they're bouncing back and forth to the top end again. I think it's really, it's great. You know, this was, um, would have been amazing when I was growing up here. So thank, keep doing amazing work and I, I will follow your adventures um, with a keen eye and ear. Thanks very much to Vanessa Paik for joining us this week and we'll catch you again next week on the Boundless Possible podcast. You've been listening to the Boundless Possible podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. To listen to more episodes, search Boundless Possible podcast on all leading podcasting platforms.